Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a really exciting interview conversation I wanted to share with you today with my friends Brad and Jesse Smith. They've been involved in the pro-life movement for quite some time, but this issue strikes um, at their heart, at their family heart, more so than just a cultural and political matter. And uh, we've hung out before in in Michigan. They're doing amazing work um, for the least of these. Um, But their battle on the front lines of this fight, I I think, is going to shock you, infuriate you, and boil you your blood and break your heart. And that's really the prerequisite to any type of change in our lives is that we're both saddened and angered. And and I wanted to bless you with their story, their fight today. Though their pro-life views were developed long before their marriage and children, Brad and Jesse Smith's fifth child faith was tested and ultimately uh, strengthened those views because after enduring pressure to abort their daughter Faith prior to birth and then pressure to not treat Faith throughout her childhood, the Smiths have battled to get proper medical treatment for her. Today, they share their family's story to challenge our society's bizarre, disgusting, and murderous mission to wipe the disabled from the face of the earth. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for making the time to join us, Brad and Jesse. Thank you. It's a it's a wonderful thing to be here. We're so grateful that you uh, invited us. Yeah, absolutely. We we I had such a good time with hanging out with you guys at a, at a Michigan speaking trip I did uh, last fall. Um, and, and we'll be going out there again this fall, and, and I look forward to that. But, uh, Brad, you're on staff with Michigan Right to Life. Um, Jesse, you've done a lot of pro-life work. Obviously, you guys are, uh, are a team, as, as any good marriage should be. Um, but you guys were, were sharing a lot with me when we were hanging out last fall, a lot of your battle um, in the pro-life movement, a lot of the battle for your family, really, um, for the life of your family, not just because you're selfless, wonderful people who fight for the lives of other unborn children, uh, but because you're actually fighting for your family as well, and this, this issue is far more personal to you than, than it is to many other pro-life activists and, and full-time pro-life career individuals. And so I just wanted people to, I wanted you to share that with our listeners because, I, I mean, I grew up in the pro-life movement. I know a lot of the horror stories of how the culture of death operates, and I speak about it all the time. But even you were telling me things that, frankly, made my jaw drop. Um, and a lot of this has to do with our culture's obsession with eugenics, um, typically from the very people who decry eugenics, uh, these woke leftists who pretend to care about the least of these. And so you've been pro-life for basically your whole life, um, but I wanted you to share why this battle and this fight is far more personal. So um, our listeners are probably going to start crying as they listen to this, but I, I just wanted you to bless our listeners and encourage them with, with the story and the path God's taken you on in your journey which so few people in the church and in the pro-life movement are even aware of. So what's, what's the genesis of this story? Where, where, would, you, um, where would you start in, in informing our listeners on the importance of this fight and where God's taken you? Well, I would say it really has to start um, kind of at the beginning of uh, even before Faith was born. Um, we actually have five children in total, so we had been through having children. We had four right. children prior to her, so she is our youngest, uh, and Faith, when we were being faced with um, the potential diagnosis, essentially they sent us in, you know, you do those ultrasounds at the early part and they check everything. Well, when we went through that first set of them, uh, they came to us and they said, you know, we're seeing some soft signs, uh, some, some calcification in the heart, um, you know, cysts on the brain, they're measuring bones and different things like that. And, and they're looking, going, we, we think there could be some issues here mm-hmm. and uh, suggested some things and, and asked us if we wanted to talk to a genetic uh, doctor. And, and we said, yeah, we did. Hmm. So we, we had that meeting arranged, went to meet that doctor, um, went in and sat down with him and he started walking through all the things that he thought we were probably facing. He named a bunch of different types of problems that could be uh, at issues. Uh, but when it came down to it, he thought what we were facing was trisomy 18, hmm. uh, which for those who don't know, trisomy, most people, the easiest way to explain it, trisomy 21 is down syndrome. 
That's okay. an extra. That's an extra chromosome on the 21st, uh, and and that's what causes Down syndrome. Okay. Our our diagnosis that we were looking at trisomy 18 is an extra chromosome on the 18th chromosome. So it's it's actually the second most common, but it's way less common than Down syndrome sure. is. And so that's that's kind of where we were at. But he started walking through all of the stuff, telling us what we were facing. And wow. I mean, it was horrible. I'll let Jesse tell you a little more about what he said. Well, yeah, I mean, he was saying, um, you know, you, you kind of get these standard lines. She's not going to have a life worth living. She won't be able to respond. Right. She won't live. Uh, five wow. to ten percent don't even make it to the first birthday. Wait, say alive. that again. And so... I, I think what percentage? What we, it's it's about about ten percent maybe of the children that are born alive make it to their first birthday. Wow! But the abortion rate with trisomy eighteen is ninety plus percent. Right. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting because oh we kind of found out a lot more after this right. after this appointment. But in essence, when you have over ninety percent of any group of people being aborted, what it means is the doctors don't know much. 10% um, of any of any group of people that are in any way dead, war, famine, disease, abortion, that's considered right. a decimated society. 90%, yeah. that's genocide. And yeah. so even getting information from geneticists, what this means is they don't see the vast majority of these children to even know right. what their specific problems will be. So he's saying something off wow. a routine wow. ultrasound but making it sound like this is the death sentence and she doesn't have a life worth living, which was said. It was gonna ruin our finances, he said. It was gonna ruin our marriage, just her presence and our, our lives. It was gonna so ruin he's essentially saying life unworthy of life or exactly. Lebens unvertens Lebens, right. which yeah. is exactly the line that the Nazis used. Yep. Which, you know, you say that, but it, it's interesting. You know, the death marches of World War II were very interesting because if you could not walk, they shot you. And it kind of feels like that. You get this prenatal diagnosis and you oh don't get gosh. out of the hospital. You don't get out of, um, in fact, most of the people we know that are younger than us, when they get even a routine ultrasound, they're not being sent to a geneticist anymore. I know two women who were already had an abortion scheduled for them. And uh, without, without asking, without their consent, without knowing. So that was the next appointment that was made without them even knowing. No. So I, I think I heard recently at a neonatologist, um, what was it? Just a it's conference. A conference. And, uh, yeah. Um, that they ha they used it at this conference. The statistic that fifty five percent of the doctors and medical staff, fifty five percent believe that disability is worse than death. And so you understand wow. when you're in a, and all you have is an ultrasound. We don't even have, you know, the solid prenatal test that would say, yes, this is trisomy 18. Right. That is so harsh. Um, what we have is just doctors in a medical field uh, that don't believe that even disabled people should be alive, that their living wow. is worse than dying. And right. so you understand, I guess I understand more now, right. you know, that attitude. But frankly, he's saying this, and he keeps telling me to get an amniocentesis, which right. is another prenatal yeah. test that can, you know, show us for sure that this is this is right. the disability he thinks it is. Well, I looked into it. There's a small chance of a yeah. miscarriage, so I said right. no, and he kept pushing and pushing mm -hmm. until Brad says, "Can you do anything for her yeah. in the womb uh, if we know?" He said, "No, it's determining." And so, and we said, that's not an option. We actually didn't even practice it. We just said it together. Wow. In unison, <laughs> it wasn't even, and we can be overwhelming. Like, I don't even know how this guy stood because we're sitting there, not an option, you know? But he keeps yet, he wow. I mean, uh, he, was in, he was infuriating. Till the point where I ended it, I, I ended the whole um, appointment because I thought Brad was so angry. I thought he was going to get over the desk at this geneticist. I mean, because right. to absolutely push you to say your child's life isn't valuable, it's going to ruin your lives, it's going to ruin your finances, and then keep pushing you. Uh, ruin your other children. Yeah. There should right. be an appalling anger to somebody right. saying that your child is unwanted, or any child. To say yeah. somebody's unwanted is really a 
horrific statement. So um, that's where it all started. We should have known after that appointment that maybe this was going to be the track. But I think we wow. thought once we chose, and, and it shouldn't even be a choice. She's a human being. It should be obvious the, it, when a woman has their child aborted, the body being aborted is not theirs. It's their child's. You know? So I don't own any of my children, body and soul. I cannot do anything to them. Um, so I, I don't know, but I think our greatest thing was once we get into it, yeah. we realize that that attitude continues on after your child is born. Yeah, we thought, we really did think that was going to be the end of this wow. discussion. Yeah. And it once was, faith was born. Yeah, right. it was the beginning of the, of the discussion in our fight. Right. The very Holy beginning. Moly. So what, what year is this and what state are you in? So we're in Michigan. Uh, Faith was born. So this is 2008. Yep. Uh, Faith was born in December. So this was like August when we had this meeting with this doctor. Uh, wow. And August, September, right around there. And so, um, it, I mean, really, it was, uh, it was an interesting time, too, because then essentially what happens then is she's born. Uh, we didn't do any of the testing, so we refused it. We didn't do it. So when she was born, no one really had any determinative uh, diagnosis for her. So they're Which, looking at her going, yeah. you know, we think yeah. there's a problem here, but they they weren't really sure what was going on. Um, and in, which was good for us because they, they really just treated her as a little girl at that point. Right. And so they, they just were the doctor, then the look, we were at a small hospital near us and the NICU doctor came into us and he said, Hey, I think I hear a problem in her heart. Um, and I would like to have it looked at further. Um, and so we agreed to, to let him look into it a little more Well, they ended up finding that she had a, a VSD. So it's a ventricular septal defect. She also had an ASD, which is uh, you know, another, but it was two different holes. So she had a wow. hole in her, which is the VSD, but he referred to it as gigantic. So one of the reasons that they weren't sure if there was anything wrong is typically um, when you have a hole in your heart, they listen and you have a murmur. Well, okay. they didn't have a murmur. It was just flowing right through. So they, they really didn't hear any murmur hmm. uh, because the hole was so big. Oh, and wow. But here's where that led to. He called a doctor and Faith was born on the 23rd of December. So on Christmas Day, this doctor comes in from the children's hospital, looks at our daughter, looks at all the stuff. He walks into us and says, yeah, her hole is gigantic. But he said, don't worry about this. We can fix it. It's not a problem. And he and he went through, you know, kind of really in in fact he said this to us he said if you had a heart problem and you were going to have to have heart surgery this is the kind of heart surgery you'd want to have uh okay. because it's done you 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 go in you fix it it's done never have to do anything okay. again so that was on christmas day two weeks later we go to visit him inside of that two weeks we get out of the hospital we start going to all kinds of doctor's appointments but they had done some chromosome testing so now we have a diagnosis of trisomy 18. So here's the same doctor who told us not a problem, we can take care of this. He comes back to us, we go meet him, he comes back with a stack of papers that he had just printed. They were still warm. Um, and it was all about trisomy 18. He starts walking through all the horrible stuff with trisomy 18 and, and walking through her heart condition. So, you know, here now he told us no problem, right? Now he's saying, and he had seen her several times. Right. I had been into the office, had testing during that, um, so it's not like oh, we saw us once and and nothing. I've been following right. up. So so wow. here now, all of a sudden, he looks at this and he goes, "Well, now that she, we know she has trisomy eighteen, I I don't think we probably should do anything. These kids don't do well with heart surgery." He starts walking through all this stuff, describing how she's going to die from heart failure. So essentially, I don't know if you know, with heart failure, your lungs fill up with fluid uh, because the pressure in your lungs gets too high. And so it fills up with fluid and you essentially drown in your own fluid in your lungs. And so he's wow. describing all this stuff and going, well, you know, I really I, I don't think we should do anything because it's it's not going to help her. And and wow. so. 
then he goes on to say, right at the end of this, though, after telling us all this horrible stuff, he says, well, if you really want to have heart surgery, I might be willing to do it, but we're going to have to go before an ethics committee. Wow. Yeah. Again, remember when this was. This was now, we're talking 2009. Right. Everyone was making fun at the time of Sarah Palin because she was talking about death panels in Obamacare. Well, oh, uh, right. Exactly. So I am listening to this argument of everyone saying, oh, there's no such thing as death panels, blah, blah, you know, this is crazy talk. And I'm going, uh, yeah, I know what they are. They tell us wow. to go to them. So he, just to clarify for our listeners, what you're saying is that he was saying, um, if you really want to not allow your daughter to die, then I'll be willing to help her, but I have to get the approval of my no, moral betters. It wasn't even he was willing. It was, I might be willing. But see, I've been around doctors long enough now to know this was his way of telling us he was unwilling and he wanted to push us to an ethics committee so they could tell us no. Wow. And that's, that's what was going on. He didn't want but, to. Okay, what is it, this ethics committee? Uh, yeah. are, do they sit on the board of hospitals, or what is this exactly? No, it's interesting because they could have parents on there. They can have doctors on there. They can have people. It really is the hospital determines who's on their ethics committee. And then they're making a decision of whether they're going to do something like that. You would think an ethics committee would be something that we as parents could go to and say, Right, they're not willing to treat being, you or pay. Yeah, yeah, and he's being unethical. Right, and it we, should be the other way around, yeah. Right, you would think that's what yeah. it's for, but that's not what it's for. It's, wow. It's really, it's really so that they can say no. Uh, now, thank God we had someone pushing us to get out of there. Right. And it was Jesse's sister, in fact. And so she she had had contact. She has a son with some special needs. And so um, she is in Boston and had talked to some folks in Boston. And they suggested that we go see a different doctor. So we left, never went back to see him. But we have some friends who we met later. We didn't know them before. We would have eventually gotten them out, too. But they went to the same hospital. We're given the same talk had the same uh, expectation that you would have to go before an ethics committee. And mm. so as a parent, you know, most people don't go through this kind of thing, but you really feel trapped. Yeah. Uh, you're overwhelmed. You, you, you just imagine. feel stuck with this, yeah. right? So that's the way they felt. And they're the experts. Right. And you we, know, if you're the doctors telling you that that's a field like, well, that's what I've got to do, and this is how it is. And, and we had someone pushing us, her sister, yeah. right? So that helped us get out of there, but they didn't. Right. So they agreed to go to the ethics committee. Uh, they showed up for the meeting and were told they weren't going to be allowed in. Well, this is my favorite part of the story because we know these people now, and he is a military man, and he is Italian as well. So okay. he yelled at them in two languages yeah. <laughs> until they let them in. He's a big guy. Yeah. Wow. And they're a whole family. And uh, so awesome. they did the, the surgery, the yeah. heart surgery. It was successful. And the telling part is that the doctors um, said to them after, uh, we just want you to know we are, even though it was successful, we're not willing to do this for anybody else. I mean, here you are successful in your own field. You are doing so successful heart surgery and you don't want to do it. You're, they're actually paid to do this, yeah. you know, and this is how wow. this is. The so they're preemptively telling this family, yeah. don't send us anyone else. Don't refer wow. us. We do, wow. We're not going to. Just a side note on the ethics. Um, one of the things, again, after, you know, after people start talking about medical ethics, you start looking into it. and. Right. The, the medical profession had some of the highest suicide rates, highest depression rates, highest substance abuse rates, almost of any profession. This is very well known. It's, there's yeah. studies done all over the world for physicians and, and people that work hmm. in the medical field. So this is very well known. Wow. So here are people who do extremely important work in society. They cannot rightly evaluate the own uh, purpose and, and goodness of their own life, yet they want to evaluate my daughters. I mean, they're about wow. the last people that I would want to evaluate my daughter's quality of wow. life. 
give me the powerful. guy that teaches the trash. He probably yeah. has a better view of his own life than the people around him. Yep. And, right. and yep. I just that terribly lightly because, you know, for fire and police and every other first responder, we sit on a curb and we clap when they go by in a parade. And we don't do that for the medical community. Right. And on the flip side, They've always been known to have a God complex. <laughs> so, you know, it's this cherished group of people who right. really should stick to what they know best, which is medicine. I don't want to wow. be confused by the Grim Reaper and my doctor. You know, yeah. I, I really want to keep going. And it's wow. sometimes really hard when you're walking into an appointment and they're looking at your kid and going disabled. And um, that ought to be a death sentence. Right. Wow. Well, and, and Jesse has a line that literally we use when we meet doctors for the first time. And, and it came out of the frustration of hearing all of this stuff. So right. when we go in to meet a new doctor, um, she will look at them and say, I'm Jesse. This is Faith. This is Brad. I just want you to know that overdose is not a medical treatment. Starvation is not a medical treatment. And death is not my daughter's cure. Wow. <laughs> Unreal. So um, take us to the sort of the next step in your guys' journey. Um, you've discussed with me and, and others before some of the euphemisms of the culture of death. Now, I talk about these all the time. I just, I just covered the hearings on the Women's Health Protection Act for the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee hearings that had Catherine Glenn Foster and, and our friend Melissa Odin, the abortion survivor. Um, and I was just translating essentially this alternative language called leftism um, that um, uh, has expertise in euphemisms, um, as does every culture of death. Well, you encountered some of these euphemisms as well as you began uh, to sort of continue your journey in, in seeking to obtain adequate health um, care and, and you know, coverage for, for your daughter. Um, and one of those was slow code. Yes. Um, so can you talk about, just continue your story about this fight to get people who are not doctors of death, who don't slap a Labens Unvertens Labens sticker on your daughter's forehead, um, or arm rather, uh, to make a more appropriate historical analogy, and, and walk us through the, the experience and journey with that. Yeah, sure. So um, really, we, we started, because of our experience, we started working on trying to get some legislation passed in Michigan. Wonderful. Uh, just just to force more transparency so they couldn't lie to us, right? right. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous that these people can lie and get away with it. Um, yeah. and, and people die because of it. And so wow. what, what we started discovering uh, through our research, we, st we started seeing all these same things being used that the Germans would say, right? So we had mentioned, you mentioned life unworthy of life. Well, I'm looking at that going, oh my gosh, quality of life. Right. This is, it's, it's just repackaging the same yeah. idea. That's right. and, and so it's things like that that we started seeing. Well, one of those was Jesse was reading through a, a journal, a medical ethics journal on trisomy 18. And this article was this doctor who was making the argument, um, you know, on whether or not we should take care of these kids. And one of the things they actually said in there, which again, the Germans said the same thing, was they talked about. Um, this was a use a waste of scarce medical resources to use on these children. Wow. Literally, she was mentioning the conference that we were in the other day. They said the same thing while we were on that one. We heard the exact same uh, comment wow. made. But so as we're researching this stuff, one of the things in this article that came up was they mentioned slow code. Now, the, this particular doctor was arguing against slow code. And both of us, when she read it, were like, what the heck is slow code? And so we started researching it, looking it up. And, okay. and we, we, what we discovered is, you know, you have code red, code blue, things like that in hospital, right? That right. everyone will hear. Well, slow code was their own nickname terminology for bringing medicine and making it look like they're treating you, but bringing it too slowly for it to make a difference. Oh my goodness. So they're letting you die while making you think they're helping you. So and the family and everyone else thinks that they're just working for your best. 
Right. right. And, and, and can I tell you, as much as, listen, I will defend the disabled kids as much as I can. This happens all the time. I work with kids all over the country, families all over the country, and this goes on everywhere. This isn't just some Michigan thing. This is everywhere. Wow. Okay. Right? So, so your, your isolated experience you quickly learned was the it's norm nice. in, in, the, in the medical field across the country. Because you kind of became a go-to for a lot of families who had children with trisomy 18 or other, you know, fatal diagnoses. Um, and so I assume you, you started, started connecting with families all around the country because of it. So right. you, you found that this was m far more the norm. Oh, yeah. And, oh and you're right. And that's one of the other terms that they will use. So they, one of the first things they try and do is dehumanize and, and steal the parents' hope. So, so you said, so what they say is fatal fetal anomalies. Right. Um, that's one of their little terms they like to throw around. They will also say incompatible with life. I, I mean, really, I've how does that one? Yeah. Really, neither makes sense. I mean, she was living in the womb, and he's saying incompatible with life while she's living. Right. The other one was fatal fetal anomaly, um, and that one again. Not fatal. She was fetal in the womb yep. once they came alive. And so they don't even make sense within the medical world. Well, you know, we all we all die one day, right? It's just a matter of how long we live. So really what this is, is just the, this is, and this is something that you guys understand, but I want our, our listeners to understand from what you just said. Um, for the left, um, they, they're ultimately pursuing um, the first lie in the garden in Genesis 3. Um, for God doth know that in, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. So a god gets to decide who lives and who dies. And so the left is simply pursuing the deification of the self. And so if, if I'm my own god, um, then I get to decide what level of quality of life is acceptable to continue living or how long this person is expected to live such that we should support their life. And if you can't live at this quality or you won't be able to live X number of years, then we'll just kill you now. Um, yeah. and, and this this really is the culture of death. So uh, continue with your guys' experience, connecting with families, continuing to fight for your own daughter's life and, and what you continue to learn through that process. Yeah, so I mean, just being able to connect with different families, I mean, we... Uh, I literally could sit here and not just tell you our story. I could tell you stories all day long about the stuff wow. the doctors have done and doctors have said. I just dealt with one in Arkansas, uh, Children's Hospital, where the hospital stood in the way. Meant, talk about slow code. They stood in the way of getting this child transferred uh, out of the hospital. And and I oh was working gosh. with this mom. She was willing to. Well, I was going to get her with our doctors who were going to help. They were willing to do everything. They were willing to transfer. Everything was in place, except they needed the hospital to say, well, you know, when you're done, if you need any treatment, you can come back to us because they lived in Arkansas and do some follow-ups. They were unwilling to do that. When I oh finally, my gosh. this is happening over months. So this started in October of last year and was carrying through the beginning of the year. And so here, here we were in March or April, and I'm finally, I'm like, okay, this is just infuriating. And so I, I got a, the help of an attorney um, to talk with this mom that this guy started working with the hospital. All of a sudden now, they start to be a little more flexible. But even then, they were giving false information to this mother um, that the doctor that I was referring her to is, is literally, he's the top in the nation at dealing with the airways of, of children with trisomy 18. Wow. And he's become that because of our work with them. And, wow. uh, and, and yet they were demeaning this man. They were demeaning uh, this doctor to the mother saying, Oh my they gosh. Don't know, doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, yeah. And these people, I knew more than what. I know far more about trisomy 18 than any of these doctors. I don't way right. more than that. so. I'm sitting here listening, going, they have no clue what they're talking about, or they they wow. just want to kill this kid. And I think they wanted to kill the kid because what ended up happening is they pushed off, pushed off, pushed off treatment uh, and wouldn't do anything. 
Uh, and then, and, and kept saying, well, we'll do it later. We'll, we'll, you know, when she gets bigger. And then when she gets to that point, well, we can't do it yet. This is what they kept doing. Wow. And so when we finally got it to where they were willing, they said, okay, we're willing to do some follow-up care because they changed their mind on that. At that point, my doctor got involved. And once he started looking at it, he had to tell the mother, I'm sorry, it's too late. There's nothing I can do. It's progressed too far. And she died. Whoa. Are you serious? They, yeah. They killed this kid. They, they <laughs> oh withheld the information so long and withheld the treatment so long and, and pushed off all the stuff so long that this child could not. And I'm telling you, I've done this long enough. I've seen enough kids. I can tell usually I'm pretty good at looking at these kids and going, okay, this is going to be a struggle. I, this one may not make it. Um, this kid could have lived. Absolutely. Wow. I have no mind that this child could have lived had nothing outside the norm of so you're saying that the norm is not even that doctors quote unquote try to discourage mothers who are pregnant with a child with a, a fetal fatal um diagnosis <clears throat> from carrying to term <clears throat> you're saying that the norm is also that once those children are born not only do they try to <clears throat> excuse me not only do they try to say I don't really want to care for the child. You know, we, we don't do that here. But they're actually trying to actively kill the child. Yes. And we've run across that several times, not just once or twice. We've run across this numerous times. I once had wow. a parent. I had a parent that they thought this NICU doctor was helping them. And I was really uncomfortable. I, you know, I, it can be very tough. Even I've been around doing this a long time, right? But it can right. still be tough to see through all of it, especially when I'm not wow. there to hear it myself. But just listening to them, I was I was a little skeptical of what I was hearing. And I wow. said, be careful. I'm not sure that this guy has your best interest in, at heart. And when when we finally found out, she got to the size where she could have heart surgery. Um, the hospital turned her down, even though they said they were going to do it. They turned her down when she got big enough. Oh, my gosh. So, again, running into this problem, right? So they're they're – they're just pushing this off, pushing this off. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll get you second opinions. I have a network of doctors. So right. I connect these parents directly to the doctors who will help. And, and we just bypass all that garbage and get them help. And so this particular case, I, I helped them get connected with a couple different hospitals. One of them was willing to do something. And so they went back to the hospital and said, hey, we're out of here. Thank you for your help so far, but we're, we're going to go. They're willing to do it. Well, one of the cardiologists was moved by that, and he went back to the team and said, hey, guys, they're leaving to go get this done somewhere else. This is something we can do. Why won't we do it? Let's do it. I, which to me, I was like, you have guys have no idea what you just did. Doctors don't go against doctors. Wow. It's very rare. And so wow. this guy went back and, and pressured the, the folks or at least convinced them, and so they changed their mind. And they ended up doing the heart surgery and she got through it and it was all successful and they ended up not having to leave. Wow. Um, but, you know, here it was, they were pushing it off. Well, what happened is that NICU doctor, when they were, when we started getting the second opinions, he came into their room and they thought this was their friend, right? They, he walks in, the husband's telling me, he's like, oh yeah, this, you know, he walks in and we're like ready to say, hey, how you doing? He just launches into them. And he says, what are you doing getting second opinions? He said, he said, we have gone above and beyond what we ever should have done for this little girl. Wow. And, and you know, and so here I am going, hey, mom, dad, guess what? He was never on your side. And he yep. just showed he was right. he was pushing off. You were experiencing slow coke. He was he was pushing everything off, expecting that your child would die. And when your wow. child didn't die, then – so he wanted to make it look like he was helping when he never really right. was. Yeah. He was never yeah, yeah. helping. Yep. That's right. Unbelievable. You know, that <clears throat> reminds me of a line from C.S. Lewis um, who talked about um, the most dangerous uh, politician is the one who shows up and says, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm here for your good. Um, and so when you've got a doctor of death – who actually believes that what they're doing is quote unquote compassionate, 
that's actually the most dangerous individual you could ever meet. Absolutely. Um, because if it's someone who knows that what they're doing is wrong, but they want to do it anyways, that person is easier to identify because they can't hide the reality that they know that X thing is wrong, that what they're doing is wrong, but they're just that evil, they're willing to do it anyways. A far more yeah. dangerous and slimy serpent is the person who says, I believe in this, this is loving, this is compassionate. And that's how inverted the culture of death is. It calls killing babies reproductive justice, um, and it calls eugenics compassionate. Um, yep. And that's, of course, exactly what we're talking about. Um, well, you guys have been fighting together for a long time, but, but Jesse, you're, you're pretty fiery, and you, you've blasted some folks before. You've been in some of these meetings, these ethics boards. Uh, share a little bit about your experience uh, fighting against um, this, sort of this, this institution of eugenics. Um, I think first, the thing that I realized is there's no, uh, there's no replacement for an advocate in the room. And I don't care if it's your child or your mother, father. Um, the third leading cause of death in American medicine is the doctor and the medical institution by omission or commission. So that's just good sense. And there's always room for an advocate. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, yeah. you saying about the doctor that didn't want a second opinion. That is insane. That's exactly what they should be doing. Nobody is expected in that field to know it all. They can't. They couldn't possibly, right? right. I mean, we know people that went to a different hospital than ours for the same heart surgery. The place in Boston for 30 years had been doing this very complicated heart surgery in one surgery instead of four, three or four, right. yeah, three yeah. that they were going to have at our hospital. So it, it's funny because I think we all assume, oh, the newest medical stuff is here. Um, our American system shows that uh, the care you get at different places is very different. The, the understanding mm -hmm. your doctor has um, is very different. I guess my greatest thing is, you know, you talking about that line from C.S. Lewis, I'm scared of finding the doctor who loves his work and loves his job and his job is killing children. I'm scared that wow. they love what they do. And wow. you're right, you know, confusing this compassion with killing. Um, we have huge hospice and palliative, and some of them are brilliant. I mean, they're helping people, but a lot of them are overdosing, starving to death, taking away hydration. Um, and it is the death of the patient. I mean, within a few right. days, if you're in hospice and three days later you're dead, you know what they just did. They raised your meds, they took away your food and hydration, and. and and you're gone. And so Unreal. I don't leave the room uh, with my daughter. Wow. Not everybody has that great luxury, but it certainly has kept her alive. And I guess wow. my thing is, I, I love President Lincoln because he said, I've not conquered my enemy when I made them my friends. And so really the thing is to win people over. They, you know, mm. people ought to be applauded and encouraged when they do their job. And right. at the same time, I want to defeat their argument if they're going the other way. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I think as a, as a parent, I understand that their shift is going to be over in a few hours, but I'm yeah. her mom for a lifetime. Yeah. And so we don't have equal say. Everybody does not have the same skin in this game. And I, remember, I talk just this way to every doctor. We don't have the same skin in the game. You are being paid. I am paying you. If at any time I don't like your service, I can leave. If you don't want to give that service, you can tell me and I That's will right. leave. And, and so let me just tell you, she does say this to the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We all get these appointments and you've got like yeah. two minutes with this doctor and literally they're reading your file on the way in. I don't have time to mess around with them. And so I, yeah. I, and I tell people, be as blunt with me as I'm being with you because literally the, a few days can mean my daughter's life. So if wow. you're not going to do this surgery, I need to know so I can find someone who can and will. Yeah. And I think uh, we have something different as Christians. I believe God makes people with purpose. I believe in the Imago Dei where the, each person has the image of God that rests within them simply by being human and alive. And just yeah. because of that, they are to be treated with dignity and the yeah. same yeah. love and care as anybody else. Right. But I right. think it is... Uh, terrible and especially as a woman my body was biologically designed to take care of my children everything about my my dna my neurology my everything about me is there for for that purpose 
And so you have caregivers such as myself or a doctor that aren't doing the caring. You have a scary world. And yeah. so I think what we want to do is wake people up and go, first of all, we need to stand as Christians, especially as mothers, and win back yeah. this field. We have always right. been the voice passion and care in society. And I don't care what society and what age, it has been the woman's job. And it's a Amen. it's a marvelous job. Yes. I, I will say though, she says especially as women, but this is where I love to challenge the men because yeah. having walked this path for the years that we have and helping mm. so many families, I began to see a trend. Yeah. Um, so we were helping families. What I would notice is that if if there was a dad in the room, and sometimes maybe not even married, but always better when they're married, right? Um, but if there was a dad in the room, if dad was involved, he didn't even have to be a loud, obnoxious kind of guy, like, you know, um, the guy who was willing to yell at these doctors. Uh, he could be a silent, quiet kind of guy. But if he's standing there and he's firm and he just supports, no matter, watch out for those moms. Watch out yeah. for those women. They become fiery. Like, I mean, you can see, right? This is not an abnormal thing in a right. mom. You start to see this across the board. Yeah, um, awesome. But you pull the man out of it. You take dad out of the picture and it's just mom. And let me tell you, almost every case, almost every case, that child dies. Wow. I think it's just that woman can put a thousand to flight two times. And it's well, very, it's very men, true. Men, we, we have a big, powerful impact in our families. And I want men to understand yeah. you matter and yeah, you need amen. to do what's right before God. Cause first of all, you're going to answer for it. You're going to stand right. before him. And you're going to answer for your family. That's right. say and, men, and men have a, a higher duty to protect uh, the most vulnerable among us. Um, yes. I mean, that's just a biological reality. Men are physically stronger generally than a woman of the same, um, you know, age. Um, and uh, there's a reason for that. We're, we're intended to be protectors. Um, and nowhere is the vulnerable being more targeted uh, than through abortion or through eugenics of the chromosomally or physically imperfect. Um, but I appreciate, Jesse, what you said about the Imago Dei because there are, the consequences of rejecting the Imago Dei are deadly indeed. Um, because if there's not a divine spark in the soul of every individual simply because they're human and they bear the image of their maker, then essentially we just live in a dog-eat-dog world where the strong can kill the weak. Might makes right when you reject the Imago Dei. And so for our listeners and for those of you guys <clears throat> tuning in before we, we close out with some of what they're doing locally and how you can get involved um, as well, I just want to make this point that if you don't ground our dignity and our natural right to life in our shared human nature, simply because we're freaking human beings. Um, then you allow the high priests of secular progressivism in the alternative religion of scientism to decide what level or standard of quality of life is acceptable to them as their own gods in order to decide who lives and who dies. Um, and that's what happens as we've continued to abandon a Christian worldview in a country that was built on these Judeo-Christian principles. Um, and so I'm so encouraged by what, what you guys are doing. I hope it encourages our listeners. Um, but I wanted to ask you this question. What do you find is the general consensus amongst Americans on these discriminatory abortions? Do, do most people oppose abortions sought after due to the disability of the child? Um, what is the consensus on that? Obviously, we, we have the data, the Gallup polling and all this stuff on the number of Americans who say they're pro-life or pro-choice, right? Or right. do you support Roe or do you not support Roe? Or do you support abortions in the first, second, or third trimester? But do you have any data on the consensus in our country on abortions being sought after purely because of a disability? No, and I don't. And I think the problem there is, and I think part of it goes back to the pro-life movement. We need to be better at this. We need to point it out more. And we've used poor language. We've let them determine the language. And in fact, I often hear this argument from pro-lifers who go, well, you know, they did this, they, they did this test um, and they were wrong. It yeah. was, the child didn't even have it. And I'm like, yeah. And what if they did? You just lost yeah. the argument. You, yeah. you don't fall into that trap. That is a bad trap to fall into because you just fell into their utilitarian outlook. Wow. On, exactly. On life. 
and yeah. and we are not the term our value is not based upon our, our abilities and what we can do right so so i think we don't have any good numbers with that because we haven't done a good enough job I, making I th- that argument i think we do because enough women in the church are having abortions well yes that I, we do know what people are saying now the question is will they say it when faith my daughter faith is in the room right you know because you bring and this is what we've done we've both went to planned parenthood meetings i've taken my daughter there i've taken her to a medical conference and took her into a medical conference outbreak session the whole purpose of it was how to shout my abortion as a yes. doctor. Share the you. story, yeah. And, well, we, we go, it was a family medical conference and uh, a friend of ours had let us know about it. We set up a booth there. I just let Faith go walk around in her gate trainer in the lobby, literally run into whatever doctor she wants to and we started a conversation. But they told us about an outbreak session that was about how to shout my abortion. So you have three doctors teaching oh, other gosh. doctors and residents how, how to, to promote, promote abortion. I didn't see one about tonsil, you know, taking out your tonsils. You know, there wasn't a shout my tonsillectomy or lobotomy or whatever else. You know what I mean? It's so ridiculous. Right. If it's not a baby, it wouldn't be this type of, of conference, right? Or outbreak yeah. session. But Faith was walking. There wasn't any room in this conference room. It was kind of small. And Faith was walking back and forth in the hallway with the door open. So every few minutes, there's Faith walking with their little gate trainer being so cute. The very child that they all say ought to be aborted. So the room gets really quiet when we come in. And um, And the doctors were visibly angry, especially the one running. So we sit right up front. And the first thing I heard the doctor say, we're a few minutes late, was, does anybody have an abortion story? And I was like, I do. <laughs> I'm yes. the only in this room raising my hand. Literally. By the way, literally. She won't call on me. In fact, she steps so she can't see me. She steps like beside stood me. Stood beside her. We were in the front row saying across from them. So she stood beside her so she wouldn't have to look at her. Yeah, it was great. And then so oh so she's like gosh. she's kind of like anyone, anyone. And finally a lady says, That woman has her hand up. She perceives yes. By ignored, their name tag. Wait, she ignored the woman who said, hey, that lady has her hand up. Yeah, she, she ignored her. <laughs> she picked three other people, then made sure she sat in my session. She was visibly angry uh, with me. But after the session was over, I picked up Faith because she was walking in the hallway with my other daughter. And the three doctors that were there, I, I brought Faith up and I said, I wanted you to meet the child that everyone in this room thinks they should abort. I'm begging you do not abort children like my daughter. And um, it's funny because I told them, not only do you kill the child, but you're killing medicine. You guys don't know what to do anymore with the medically fragile because you've taken the lives of so many before they've even uh, seen their first sunrise that you don't know how to do your field anymore. They're actually becoming worse at caring for the sick, not better. And so it's killing medicine at the same time that they're killing their patient. Makes sense. and let me let me just kind of you you had mentioned you know what we're doing here locally and and just kind kind of give you a sense of the pervasiveness of this because I've, yeah. I've said that this is the high majority and I've said this to doctors I say this is the high majority of your field that thinks this way Jesse had mentioned that percentage of fifty five percent who said disability was worse than death well I, I you know that's the ones who were honest enough to say it that way but. Wow. We ran across a survey from March uh, of 2016. It was a survey sent out to 3,000 NICU doctors across the country. So these are the neonatologists, the people who see our kids first after they're born. Okay? Right. So they asked these doctors, they said in this, and they had 490 respondents. So it was a good number. So these are good numbers to, to be able to judge on. And so uh, they asked them, they said, do you think that it is ethically permissible to put a DNR, so do not resuscitate, order onto a child deemed incompatible with life, like our daughter? Do you think it's ethically permissible to do this without even asking the parents permission? 76% of NICU doctors said it was ethically permissible to put a do not resuscitate order onto a child who they say can't live without even Holy asking permission. That's why I don't leave the room. Because I don't know who's coming in on the next shift. They were willing I, to admit that? Uh, to to admit that? Yeah, well, it, it sounds was, shocking that they would actually admit that in yeah, the survey. You'd be amazed what they say amongst each other. 
we've had a, I had a nurse now tell me, you know, you don't have to feed your daughter. And I said, oh, no, I have four older children. We feed them, too. Like, how absurd, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, what she did is the same nurse who said that literally minutes before saying that um, was talking about how, how what a rough week she had because she was taking care of her cats and they had to take them to the vet. And it was expensive and they were sick and it was costing her so much money. And then later in the conversation, she mentioned she didn't understand. Uh, she just couldn't understand some of these special needs parents because they just didn't know when to let go. Wow. To which I would say, to which I would say, um, well, it sounds like you had a, you were having a rough season. I think your quality of life is kind of rough there. You know, those cats, you're really stressed out taking care of uh, dependent uh, animals. You know, I don't know, maybe I should just eugenics you. Maybe I should just suicide you. And of course, yeah. this, is, this is where all of this leads. If you allow small but rotten premises to yeah. take root in our American Republic, that rotten premise being not all humans deserve the right to life if they don't meet the woke leftist standard of quality of life, then you've opened up the door to define quality of life however you want. Yep. by those with political power. And that's yep. why it's so important for Christians to become political hacks. Yes, we should get political. We should seek to obtain positions of political power because who better to wield political power than the sons and daughters of God who understand that they're going to give an account to the king of kings for how they wielded that political power. I can't think of right. a better group of individuals to get political. So when Christians tell us, Brad, Jesse, you're, you're making an idol out of politics, you know, keep your religious positions in the church. I say, no, you've made an idol out of not being political. You're Amen. so afraid to wield political power to do what? To protect the vulnerable and to Amen. love your neighbor. That you're willing to allow the left to slap the word politics onto their bigotry and eugenics so that you'll stay silent because you're that afraid of the word politics. Well, I got, I got to tell you, I talk to a number of pastors doing what I do. And one of the things they do is I kind of walk through the numbers with them to let them realize, you know, if, if you look at it, you have a 90% abortion rate. This just takes a little bit of thinking through this. And you had a 90% abortion rate with trisomy 18 children. That means 10% of the people are willing to have this child and not kill the child. So let's put that against the church. You have 30 to 40% of people who attend church on a weekly basis. That means you have two thirds to three quarters of the people in church who will kill their disabled child and will not have wow. that child. Wow. That's happening because pastors aren't speaking. And, and, I, and I let them know, you're gonna stand before God and answer for that. If That's you're right. not saying anything, you, we were told to be a voice for the voiceless. It's a command. Yeah. It's yeah, not right. a request. It's yeah. a command. Yeah. And so, so I, you know, we're encouraged. And you know, we throw out these horrible things. And I want people to understand the gravity of what we're facing. But I also want them to understand there's hope, yeah. and that yeah. we can win this battle. Let me just tell you a few things that we've been able to do, just as a couple people. We did get that bill passed in Michigan uh, back in 2013. We got it okay. passed with unanimous votes Wonderful. in every vote that was taken. It was unanimous across the board. Uh, and I think in large Praise part God. because the way we positioned it hmm. um, and we made it about transparency and treating disabled children and we right. made it hard for them to do that. But, but beyond that, the doctor that we work with um, that we, we years ago after he had treated our daughter, I asked him, I said, can I send you other children, if will you be willing to take care of them? And he said, yes. Right. And, and I looked at him, I'm telling you, it was just the spirit of God, because I said, we're going to make you the expert. Yeah, and yeah, wonderful. Today, and national, rich, and rich. Yeah. Yeah. Today, he is the national expert treating these kids. Yeah. But because of that, I can walk you through the numbers. So remember, we said it's a 90% abortion rate, then right. the 10% that are born alive, 90% of those will not make it to their first birthday. So just running that out, 100 kids in the womb, by age one, that means one is left alive. Wow. With his help and, and what we've been able to prove, because he's treated enough kids, we have our own study now, um, is that when we have parents that get fully engaged and do everything they can to help their child, we have a 90% survival rate. Wow. So it's not a, not a 90% death rate, a 90% wow. survival rate. 100% and that starts to wow. put pressure on other people to treat when they yeah, start seeing right. that it's effective. That's and right. so, 
So that's what we're doing. We're working to, to do Praise that. And, and also in, in Michigan, I will tell you, I'm so thrilled. Uh, I, I, years I worked in radio and I left it to, to get more involved in this. Um, and so now I work for Right to Life of Michigan. And we have a bill right now that's been put forward in the House uh, that it is called the the ban on targeted abortions or targeted Wonderful. abortion. And so it's larger that, than just one diagnosis. Right. So so what that would do is it would ban targeting disabled children. And we need to use that. I always tell parents, don't be afraid to use the term disabled. Right. Because um, it implies so much. And yeah. we need to get back the language to that. We let them take the language too often. Yep. We need to force them to argue for what it really is, which is targeting yep. and killing disabled children and the that's hatred, right. bigotry that's right. that they have for these kids. That's right. And so, so that's what this bill will allow us to do. So it will ban Wonderful. ban targeting disabled children. It will ban targeting children based upon race, and it will ban targeting children based upon sex selection. Yeah. And so, so I would love any any of your people in Michigan. Please get in touch with your legislators and put pressure on them to get involved in this and put their name behind this bill. Um, But if you're outside of the state, if you could please pray for us, pray that we can get this done. I've been saying for a long time, I think one of the greatest ways that we could put a dagger in the heart of abortion is to make it about the disabled child because they're the number one target. They're the first one. They are the front line. And I want people to understand that. They're the first target. And they were the first right. targeted in Germany, the T4 right. program, before a single Jew was ever killed with the gas chambers. That's disabled right. children were the ones they perfected the gas right. chambers on. Yeah. So we need to fight this battle, and we need That's to stand right. up, and we can win. I, we right. can win. I, Jesse has a line that she uses a lot. I just love this line. And it is, you can, you can live, um, what was it? You can live three, 30 days without food. You can live three days without water. You can live three minutes without oxygen, but not a single second without hope. Wow. Amen. We have Christ. Yeah, praise God. Is our hope. So right. don't ever let someone steal your hope because yep. we have hope that is going to bring about all the answers. Yep. And I would just encourage don't sit back, don't That's get right. involved. Please help us fight this because we need an army. This isn't something that Seth Gruber can do. It's not something that Brad and Jesse can do. We need an army of people right. working on this. So, That's right. I, I, and I, I think, I think the disabled child awakens the moral intuitions of Americans that they have suppressed for far too long because there's something disturbing and disgusting about admitting that you sanction and defend abortions purely sought after because of the race, the sex, or the disability of the child. So while the left tells conservatives, you guys are racist, sexist, and ageists, I say, really? Do you really want to defend that statement? Do you sanction and defend killing babies if the reason they're being killed is because of their race, sex, or disability? So who's the racist, sexist, and ageist or ableist now? Um, and it's time for the church to blow out that bigotry and to be the ones on the front lines defending the most vulnerable among us. Well, guys, thanks so much for what you're doing. Uh, guys, if you enjoyed this, as I'm sure you did, go support them. You can watch a documentary where they tell their story as well called Incompatible with Life um, documentary, which I encourage you guys to go watch. Um, you guys can uh, follow their journey on, I believe, your Facebook page, which is what's that called? It's Keeping Our Faith. Keeping our faith. Wonderful. Yeah, beautiful. And of course, your daughter's name is Faith for those for anyone who missed that. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing your story. Um, guys, check out this bill in, in Michigan. Check out Michigan Right to Life where Brad is on staff. Uh, watch their documentary, Incompatible with Life. Um, support them anyway. Pray for them. And bring these types of data and information to your church. Um, to your pro-life organization, to people you know. Uh, Share this interview and this conversation with a pro-choice friend of yours um, and have coffee over it and talk about it and say, do you support this? Do you support this type of eugenic targeting of unborn children? And hopefully this was just an encouraging episode and conversation for you guys to get in the gap, to get off the bench, to get on the battlefield and to defend life. So Brad, Jesse, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
Absolutely. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining me, guys, today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. Also, subscribe on YouTube. Hit the notifications bell so you don't miss an episode. We're trying to uh, push out as much viral content as we can on these platforms as long as I'm allowed to exist and fly under the radar of the technocrats at Google. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com, to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local. My summer's full. My fall's filling up quickly, uh, one, one of which will be out in Michigan with Brad and Jesse Smith. Book me soon if you want to get me into church to wake up the church, uh, wake up Americans to end abortion. Um, and uh, if you want to sign up for my newsletter, get more information, you can do that on my website as well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.